0: Welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, season two Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez.
1: And I'm Brian Connolly, the other co-host.
0: All right. So uh, it's been a while because of unexpected winter weather.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know if if you heard out there, but we got hit by a major storm and then our Everything collapsed. That, uh, everything we knew that existed in life got taken Sorry. away.
0: Our infrastructure is made of paper mache, it turns out. <laughs> Hell of a way to find out.
1: So let it be a warning to wherever you live because it could happen to you. <laughs> Didn't think <laughs> it was going to happen to us. We were boiling snow. It was like Little House on the Prairie. It was uh, crazy. Yeah. So. <laughs> All
0: right. Last time we talked about Rumblefish, with friend of the podcast Shane Hazen and his uh, podcast Five Phenomenon, just us this time, and we're going to talk about the Cotton Club.
1: Yeah, excited. But first, do you did you happen to get a wine we haven't covered yet?
0: Uh, I think so. I have totally lost track of the wines at this point. <laughs> I I've been got...
1: trying to, but I feel like I'm maybe like. Yeah, lost track of it. Like I keep a list on my phone, but then I'm like, I thought I had this, but it's not on my list. So I think I've just been really bad at keeping track of it.
0: I've got the 2019 uh, Diamond Collection Rosé of Pinot Noir. Ooh, that's so
1: sounds good. So it's a pink
0: wine, like a pink white wine or
1: something. Yeah, well, it's a rosé. Uh,
0: yeah, it's a, it's a non-bubbly rosé. Basically, how is it? Pretty good. Okay, um, read
1: us, read us the story. I want to know what Porter has. To, what I what I get to eat it with? Or
0: let's see, this is tiny white lettering on pink label. So it is very hard for me to read because I'm in my dimly lit podcasting guest room. <laughs> uh, let's see, it is. The Diamond Collection Rose captures, uh, see, rose petals, strawberries, and uh, minerals of Italian blood oranges. So we eat it with uh, food like chicken or oysters.
1: Ooh. <laughs> Well, I'm doing the Rosso Bianco Rosso. And we've had that one before, I believe. That's the one that's basically the table wine, his table wine. So I don't need to read the back of it because I believe I've already done that. Uh, It's really good. I let it breathe for like an hour. Oh, it's a good bottle of wine. Um, Perfect to take us through this episode. So I guess it's my turn to do the plot I keep getting stuck with the ones with all the million people in it. (laughs) So I'm gonna try to make it as simple as possible, but you can help me out because there's a lot of names, there's a lot of stuff going on. The Cotton Club, 1984. Um, And and I'm gonna describe the original version. We'll go into the director's cut in the middle of the episode, sound good? So uh, basically this movie follows two guys. One is Dixie Dwyer, played by Mr. Richard Gere, who is a cornet player, jazz musician. As we follow him through playing at the Cotton Club, various clubs, he uh, gets uh, charmed by uh, Vera, played by Diane Lane, who's the mistress to gangster Dutch Schultz, played by a very terrifying-looking, like Dick Tracy character, James <laughs> Remar, and uh, he, James Remar, likes. Uh, Dixie and he's just like come to my party and play this you know play your cornet and like and, and he basically gets hired by this gangster to kind of entertain his mistress when when Dutch is out having to be with his wife or take care of you know gangster business so he really and, and he likes him because he saved his life because in the, there's a scene where they're at a club I think it's the cotton club and the cops come in they throw a stick of dynamite under the table that the gangsters are at and Richard Deere kind of like saves Dutch in a way. And so he's like, I owe you one kid. Like, and the, oh, oh, the, what he owes him is basically like be his right-hand man, pal around with him and just kind of, you know, have, have a job that way. The other person we fall around is the Sandman, Sandman Williams, played by the brilliant Gregory Hines, who is a struggling tap dancer. He has a routine he does with his brother. They, they, uh, get, they do a show at the Cotton Club. He... Um, he falls in love with a singer named lila is that right yeah. and she uh is a singer uh, a, a mixed race uh, woman uh and she sings at the cotton club and she's able to kind of get into the places he can't get into because she can pass for white if she wants to when people you know, people don't uh assume or know that she's mixed race so if she wants to you know be white like or people let her kind of play at their w- whites only clubs and this movie kind of bounces between these these characters and it kind of deals with um what african americans were dealing with in the late 20s like this at, at, specifically at the cotton club which was like a big part of kind of this the harlem music scene you have like a cab calloway playing there all these amazing uh Uh, dance numbers uh, music numbers uh, and then you follow Richard Gere's character who's hanging out with gangsters goes off to Hollywood becomes kind of like a George Raft sort of character uh, appearing in kind of these exploitation gangster movies and actually becomes sort of popular then comes back to the world of the Cotton Club and kind of goes back to hanging out with all these gangsters and then that's not a, like, and then there's just so many other people in this movie and it's just like, it's very much like a return to the Godfather sorta type of movie for Coppola. It's a much more traditional movie than the last film we did with Rumpelfish or Apocalypse Now or One from the Heart. This is definitely more of like the outsider's Godfather, like just a really strong narrative film. But you also, you have so many great character actors in this movie. We have the return of Lawrence Fishburne as a gangster. We have Alan Garfield uh, back as a Jewish gangster named Abba Dabba, which is amazing. <laughs> a very slender Alan Garfield. He looks very healthy here. Looks I great. did
0: not recognize him.
1: Yeah. Uh, then you have Bob Hoskins as Oni Madden, who, uh, as the owner of the Cotton Club. And then his right-hand man, Frenchie, played by the great Fred Gwynn. Yes, Herman Munster is in this movie. Uh, and, you, and then there's also, Humm Waits is back as sort of like what what is he's like kind of the mc at the yeah 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 i think
0: he's the mc he acts like the mc
1: (laughs) you have john ryan as a as a gangster joe flynn uh jennifer gray is in it and of course the return of a nicholas coppola nicholas cage as dixie dwyer's uh loose cannon brother the kind of brother that coppola likes to put in his movies uh the brother who doesn't follow the rules And as soon as Nicolas Cage shows up in this movie, it's basically you just, the countdown to when he's going to get shot by somebody. (laughs) Minute one, I was like, well, he's not going to make it to the end of this movie. It's that kind of uh, Nicolas Cage character. Um, And yeah, it, oh, Joe D'Alessandro is in it as uh, Lucky Luciano from the the great, uh, from all the Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey movies. Um, There's a... um, Oh, who else? Uh, James Russo is somewhere in there. I didn't pick up that he's in it, but he's supposedly in it. And you can see in the background, there's a Giancarlo Esposito floating around that you you can catch if you're paying close attention. I don't think he has any lines, or if he does, it's like one line.
0: No, I totally missed him. Uh, I knew he was in it from looking at the complete cast list on IMDb and Wikipedia. Uh, Also playing Nicolas Cage's and Richard Gere's mother is... Gwen Burden. Who dat? Uh She is, uh, now I don't want to describe her this way first. So I'm gonna say she's an extremely accomplished uh, Broadway dancer and performer. She was in Chicago, like I think the first run of Chicago or at least the successful one in the late 70s. Uh, and she is the wife and partner, creative partner of Bob Fossey.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Uh, the C- FX series, Fossey Burden, she's played by Michelle Williams. She's nice. played wonderfully by Michelle Williams. Yeah, the series really makes it clear. And if you knew about Bob Fossey's career, make it clear like, yeah, she's an equal uh, creative force with Bob Fossey. She's not just the wife of Bob Fossey, which is the very first thing I was going to say, but I did not want to pin her as just the wife of a great artist and dancer. Um,
1: cool. So she's very oh, good. And, and you have a Mario Van Peeples as one of the dancers and the great Jack A as one of the yes, dancers yes. performers, which was very exciting. And you get to see more of her in the director's cap, which is also very exciting. So yeah, so this movie's got a lot of famous people. Oh, Woody Strode is in it as the doorman to the Cotton Club. Um, but the movie's just sort of like a big, story kind of going through the years following sort of these dancers and these gangsters making a movie that's basically a gangster musical of sorts you could say a combination of like the godfather and one from the heart <laughs> to make one type of new kind of movie uh and it's uh and it was uh based on the story by Moria Puzo, which was based on a book the pictorial history of the cotton club by Jim Haskins <laughs> So that's it, that's the plot. But it's more like, to me, this movie feels like it's like a character piece. Like the story is kind of not really important. It's more about, it's kind of like the outsiders where you're just following a lot of people around over time.
0: Uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of people. Yeah, I'm gonna give away my verdict on the movie already. It's uh, meandering and unfocused <laughs> all over the place. Cause there are so many people with all their stories to say that Richard Gere is Richard Gere I guess is the he's a star of the movie but there are big chunks of the movie where he just disappears yeah and now it's only about Nicolas Cage and we're just following Nicolas Cage uh and then Richard Gere shows up again we are like oh right you're in this movie too <laughs>
1: I think the director's cut does a better job of making it seem like both a Gregory Hines and Richard Gere movie, whereas the original cut, it just feels like they're trying to make a Richard Gere movie, but it doesn't quite feel like that because of the way it jumps around.
0: Yeah, um, so the history behind this movie, and it has, like many a Coppola movie, an incredibly troubled and interesting production history which we just can't get into completely but uh so it's based on the pictorial history of the cotton club which is just a book of photographs robert evans this was a production that coppola joined it was basically a director for a higher job robert evans by this point he was no longer the production chief of paramount he was an independent producer And he wanted to do something like The Godfather. So he bought the rights of this book. He hired Mario Puzo to come up with a screenplay. And then couldn't ever lock down stars or a director. But the early version of this movie was a screenplay by Mario Puzo starring, as in the Richard Gere role, you guessed it, Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) And as Sandman, you guessed it, Richard Pryor. That would have
1: been an interesting movie
0: (laughs) and Evans was going to direct it himself Uh, had he
1: ever directed anything before
0: no no he had not so that would have been interesting Uh, and he couldn't (laughs) get he just couldn't get lock anyone down or get funding and then he ended up getting funding from some really shady people who brought in another shady person And a deal was entered into with the Puerto Rican government. And one of those (laughs) like, don't ask how. Also, this other guy you've never heard of gets 10%. And then, uh, I can't, I didn't write down the name. Anyway, someone died under suspicious circumstances. They were complaining about their cut of the movie, got into a car with uh, some of the mysterious financiers and were never seen again alive and then eventually the body turned up and so robert evans was bogged down with the legal stuff like lawsuits and uh, and whatnot and then also a police investigation so wow he, he still had to make the movie because it was the only thing he had going at the time and so he brings in coppola at this point As we've established, Coppola is still in massive financial debt from One from the Heart and Zoetrope uh, not succeeding. So at first he takes the job just to give notes on the screenplay. And then uh, by this point, Richard Gere and Gregory Hines had signed on and they want Coppola to direct. So Coppola gets hired to direct. And he's treating it as like a job for hire. But then as he gets more invested in it, he starts writing the screenplay himself and he wants more control. And because of the legal stuff that Evans is caught up in, Coppola gets that control. At least that is what the biography by Michael Shoemaker that I've read says. This is a movie where Coppola blames Evans for everything that went wrong. And Evans blames Coppola for everything that went wrong. (laughs) And unlike The Godfather, which was a financial and critical and cultural success. And so they both get credit for it. Now in this movie, they're each trying to put blame (laughs) on each other. Yeah, this movie was not a financial success
1: well, the budget went way over budget and like of course couple of blames robert Evans for that but like it went to like 57 million dollars and some circles say 65 million dollars which in 1984 that's a pretty big chunk of change that's a lot that's an expensive movie i mean and it looks like an expensive movie like they rebuilt and created the cotton club and it's like this really lavish big production but uh but yeah the movie didn't connect with audiences it didn't make money and critics were kind of split on it but like there's a lot of critics who thought it was really boring and they didn't get it and just like with every couple movie we've been review- reviewing from the 80s people were just like oh he's lost it but then like roger ebert gave it four stars and said it was one of the best movies of the year like he has a great rave review for it he it was still also loved it and
0: wished yeah. that it was longer <laughs>
1: And supposedly uh, it's, uh, you know, they shot so much footage that for enough for many other movies that they just kept going and the production was going on for a really long time. And just like with One from the Heart and Apocalypse Now, the story of its crazy production became sort of the news story, became a thing that people were talking about before the movie even was seen by anybody.
0: And the big reason for the film's financial uh, failure is that it it opened, I think, number five in the box at the box office that week or whatever. And it made a decent amount of money for how many theaters it was in. The it was competing against like Beverly Hills cop. You know, like so you're not gonna top Beverly Hills cop, you know, if you open the same week or you open the week after, or even a few weeks after. But the executives at Orion were scared they weren't going to make their money back, so they announced that the Cotton Club was going to be retooled as a like four-part miniseries event, like the TV edit of The Godfather, and and that never happened.
1: That would have been interesting. I would have liked to see that.
0: It would have been interesting. One of we will say I I would guess at least three times that this would be a TV series if made today, at some point in our podcast. But uh, with that being announced that, hey, we're gonna redo this for TV, it doesn't give much of an incentive for people to go spend money <laughs> at the theaters when they can wait yeah. a little bit and then watch it a presumably better version on TV. And then yeah. that better version never happened. Yeah, So this movie just kind of faded away.
1: Yeah. And uh, another weird thing that happened was the I don't know if it was Orion or the producers said that the movie had too many black people in it and too much tap dancing. So they made a couple of take a lot of that out, which is crazy because it's about a club in Harlem <laughs> that's famous for the African-Americans that came out of it and the dance numbers that they did their music. So it's like, why did you even sign off on making this movie producing this movie if you get it and you're like we don't want a movie with that in it like that's not marketable it's like but that's what this movie is about and that's part of why the original movie has kind of a disjointed feel, is because he took out about 30 minutes of all of the black culture stuff basically
0: watching the theatrical version of the cotton club i'm thinking one this movie doesn't even have to be called the cotton club because so much of it takes place outside of the cotton club it's about the love triangle between Richard Gere, Diane Lane and James Ramar and like, yeah, Dick Tracy style makeup doing like an (laughs) Edward G Robinson face the whole movie. And you know, he's not that he's not old at that point. James Ramar isn't also, I think this is maybe the first and only time James Ramar gets billing over Nicolas Cage.
1: (laughs) It was short window. He had when that,
0: (laughs) Yeah, so they've f- the movie focuses on that for like the first half, and then it's about Nicolas Cage being like a wild gangster and getting like uh getting in trouble. Uh, spoiler alert by this point, uh, yeah, he gets shot up to death in a phone booth, does a great Nicolas Cage scream, <laughs> and then it focuses back on Richard Gere and. Uh, like Bob Hoskins and Fred Gwynn and Bob Hoskins and Fred Gwynn are great. together. They're the
1: best part of the whole movie. Like they, their relationship is great. And I read some review where someone described them as R2, D2 and C3PO, <laughs> where they're sort of like the comedy slash heart of the movie in an unexpected, weird way. And hands down the best scene in the whole movie is when Fred Gwynn has been kidnapped Nicholas Cage there's a ransom on his head Bob Hoskins pays the $50,000 ransom Fred Gwynn mistakenly thought and heard that it was a $500 was all that Bob Hoskins was willing to pay and there's this great scene of him like uh confronting Bob Hoskins being like I can't believe I'm only worth $500 and then it becomes this really touching moment of Bob Hoskins being like no it was 50,000 I would have paid three times that like I missed you basically it's like they're in love it's just like yeah. I would have been so sad if you were gone. Like, I missed you so much. If anything bad happened to you, like, I was so worried. And then the, it, Fred Gwynn breaks Bob Hoskins' watch and then gives him a gift that's a new watch. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> it's a great scene. And supposedly Fred Gwynn wrote that scene? Is, <laughs> I read that that was a scene of, like, I don't know if it was improvised or Fred Gwynn was like, I got an idea for this scene. And it's like the kind of scene that would totally be cut out of a movie but the fact that it's in this movie is great. Like that, that scene is there and intact. Um, so good. And seeing Fred Gwynn in this movie, it was I didn't know he was in this. It's so exciting to see. Because he's taller than everybody else because you know he's Herman Munster. And then to pair him with Bob Hoskins who's shorter than everybody else and having them next to each other. Like there's a great scene where they're at a urinal next to each other. And it's just like, the proportions
0: are so. Yeah, odd. it's like a <laughs> like a cartoon, like a cartoon squat bulldog and Great Dane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they are like cartoonish and like lovable. Uh, yeah,
1: more, more are, so than anyone else in the movie, I think. Like they're the people that you actually like have any feelings towards.
0: Yeah, like, Bob Hoskins is uh, he's the owner of the Cotton Club, but also kind of a gangster. Fred Gwynn, yeah, you know, his right hand man, but they are they don't seem ever like malicious or like wanting to get more than what they already have. They're fine with running the club and doing some gangster stuff and they're not trying to, like expand the racket. I'm surprised that they did not get a whole series of movies or their own TV series after this. Just watching Fred Gwynn and Bob Hoskins together is so entertaining.
1: And this was sort of the beginning of Bob Hoskins being in American movies, playing sort of, like getting his accent down and playing kind of like these little kind of angry but funny guys. Like this is definitely like precursor to how he is and like who framed Roger Rabbit or, you know, like, um, you know, it just... You know, the Mario Brothers movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's like Bob Hoskins is like aware at, in this movie and certainly in other movies that like he can like he can give the anger, but knows that he is smaller than everyone. So it's going to come off like kind of comical. Yeah. And he like makes that work in the scene to actually make you like him because yeah. he's angry but he can't really do anything about it not physically
1: <laughs> it kind of makes me wish that there was a movie where he played al capone which i don't think ever happened and like if he was al capone in the untouchables or something that would have been interesting because he has like you, you can't help but love him like there's something so likable about bob hoskins always and everything um and and I think the other part of this movie we really like is the relationship between Gregory Hines and his brother played by his actual brother. Did you know that that was his actual brother?
0: Yes. I, well, I knew it from the credits cause I saw like Maurice <laughs> Hines
1: in it. And their, their relationship is great. And then they're, they have a following, falling, falling out when Gregory Hines character kind of gets a solo performance at the Cotton Club. But then there's this great touching moment later where they get back together and like, to me, like the highlight, like if like you ever see this movie once, it's totally worth it, because seeing Gregory Hines dance and seeing him dance with his brother, like those scenes are so good. The tap dancing scenes are so exciting. There's a part where they go to the Hoofers Club, which is a just a club for tap dancers for men only. Men, a men, tap only, tap men
0: only. I love that scene because yeah, Gregory Hines, has he's just gotten married to Lila. He brings over to the club. And one of the old men is like, what's she doing here? She has to leave. This is men, this club is for men only. And she <laughs> says, why? And he says, why? I'll show you why. And then they get up and do a bunch of sick taps. They just, they just all start tap dancing like so intensely.
1: It, and that great. scene is great. And there's a part where there's like 30 guys tap dancing all at once. And, like, that, to me, that's, like, the best part of the movie is, like, all the dance stuff. Like, it's so good. I really liked this movie. I thought this movie was great. I was – I'm a big fan of it. Like, I had only ever heard negative things on it. I remember my parents renting it when it came out and them just hating it and everyone saying it was boring. But, like, to me, this was just, like, a fun gangster musical sort of thing. It was just, like – it was just a good time – seeing all these great actors like it was a great looking movie like from the get-go like the sets look great the lighting's great it's fun I think this movie is very fun it definitely has big problems like like the big problem being like a lack of emotional attachment (laughs) to the main characters or you know there definitely is like missing a connection like like when things happen to the people good or bad you don't really feel anything For whatever reason, that's a that's a writing problem. The movie doesn't have an acting problem. All the actors are great, but the writing there's just something missing that just doesn't gel. Maybe because there's too many people in it, but then you could say that for about the outsiders, and that's not the problem of the outsiders. Or you can say that about the Godfather movies. That's not the problem with those movies. Like you feel during those movies, but this movie just lacks a a feeling. You know? You know? I
0: wonder if it's because of the the fact that it's a a a pseudo musical and there's just all this jazz like this uh energetic jazz playing and then you're cutting between so many uh characters that to me it felt really like frenetic and like we're with this person okay now we're with this person and now we're back here and now there's this and it's just felt so jumping all around that I couldn't ever get like settled into <laughs> the world of this movie.
1: Yeah.
0: And then uh yeah, you're right in I mean neither version really did I feel like an especial emotional attachment to the characters just because yeah, that's like a writing problem yeah. and I think because he wanted to capture the whole span of this world of the Cotton Club in Harlem in the late 20s and the early 30s. From the performers on stage and the glamorous people that went there, and the gangsters that were involved in the club, and the gangsters that just went to the club, that like it—it's—it it, wants to be sprawling, but it's not. Uh, one thing Gene Siskel said is he wished that this movie was three hours long, like I agree. The Godfather. Yeah, and I think. Like, I mean, I would love to see that version of the movie yeah. because I think it would have more time to breathe. Yeah. Um, and he said it's because the right stuff failed at the box office and now movie studios are scared to put out three hour movies. But and this movie suffered from studios being afraid to put out three hour movies
1: and you're right that this like this totally feels like this could have worked now as an HBO show. Like if this was like a Boardwalk Empire type show, just about kind of the gangsters in Harlem at the yeah, Cotton or like
0: Club. The Wire like, came to mind. Like so many characters,
1: yeah, like, characters are different positions of power and culture, all kind of jamming together. Because like you have in this movie Jewish gangsters, Irish gangsters, um, the you know the the, Italian the, the gangsters, black gangsters. Nine, black gangsters like and you just get a little taste of all of them in this but you don't really get to settle in with any of them uh and like this could totally be a great tv show like i don't know why someone isn't trying to do that currently like make the cotton club hbo show that'd be a great show just take these characters and do the what the characters they wrote for this movie because like i love all the characters in this movie are great like it would be interesting to know more about the troubled Nicolas Cage gangster. Like, it's an interesting character in his weird little, you know, sub world. And then like, uh, you know, like all the, the people run the club and all the different, you know, things going on. It is interesting. It just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like there's enough to really give you what you want from all of these people.
0: Um, More time, more depth would make the gangster side of, it make everything in this movie more interesting, but especially the gangster side, which in its present form for me, I did not think this was a good movie in the theatrical version. <laughs> I thought it was a slightly better, uh, less scatterbrained movie in the encore version, but I still think it's not very good. Um, I think Richard Gere is not the right
1: person. <laughs> he just has those dead, cold eyes. <laughs> it's hard to like, like if you had someone maybe more charismatic, like he he's one of those actors that like, it's really you have to really use him really well to make it work because there's just some there's a dis, there's a disconnect with him always I've always felt it and there, like it works in something like American Gigolo where you're like okay it's weird that they, this weird quiet guy like it works for that or like the Days of Heaven but when you're supposed to when he's supposed to be this sort of charming guy like he's not Tom Cruise he doesn't like you know he doesn't have charisma coming off of him like he clearly has something cuz he's a movie star but he just he kind yeah, of i don't I don't think he's a bad actor Lacking.
0: but he's someone that just he, he's like the like the knight in in a game of chess <laughs> like it it has to be used in a specific way and when you use it well it's really like it really works but you can't just keep making L's all over the board <laughs> for no reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, I'm he's, he strikes in-
0: me as a kind of actor that like it always wants to be serious,
1: and yeah. sometimes
0: you see that in his roles. In this movie, uh, for me especially, like he, like I'm really like he's really like caught up in the character, and he is playing the core in that solo's
1: yeah that's really him playing which is impressive like that's impressive but like i don't feel anything (laughs) in this movie and same with diane lane like the whole kind of triangle love thing like the most interesting character of that three is james ramar like as dutch like because he's such a weirdo he seems really sad and desperate they made him look terrifying in this movie with some weird terrible bald wig and whatever they got (laughs) like balding like like, he's good. And that scene, when he stabs the guy in the buffet line, that scene's great. <laughs> that scene's really That scene is crazy. And it's really gory. And it feels like a Brian De Palma scene. It's, like, really upsetting and out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, so James Ramar, at this point, um, it's early on in the movie after he's uh, brought Richard Gere into his circle. And Bob Hoskins has is trying to like uh, arrange a peace between James Ramar and a rival gangster. And so it's at a classy place and there's like a classy lunch. Uh, Everyone's dressed, you know, in their 1928 finest and is, yeah, chandelier and they all like sit down and Bob Hoskins mediates and like, all right, it all works out. And then the other gangster makes a, a stray comment and James Ramar can't take it anymore. And, Stabs the guy, yes, yeah, so like abruptly and violently, and this blood spraying everywhere, and it's on the chandelier, and you're like, "What the
1: fuck?" That part is great. <laughs> <laughs> it of violence reminded me of like the violence in The Godfather, where like it's yeah. like, brutal and like quick, you know. It, and, it, and it's,
0: uh... it reminded me of the Steve Martin thing where he said that like the reason there's a sword fight in Roxanne and like right at the beginning. Is because he thinks you should put the most ridiculous thing that could happen in your movie at the beginning. Because if it happens in the first 20 minutes, people will accept it and then they'll accept anything, anything yeah. you want to do after. Yeah. Because yeah. if a sword fight happened at the beginning of this movie, then whatever else, that is plausible. And yeah, if at a classy dinner, there's like a blood splattering murder <laughs> and everyone's <laughs> like, oh like oh james ramar dutch what did you
1: do <laughs> it's definitely like a scene that like joe pesci would have done in a scorsese movie that kind of like i have a short fuse and out of nowhere i'm gonna just like kill you <laughs> brutally in front of have a room of people doesn't matter that everyone sees me do this because i'm too mad to uh and he does it because john ryan says uh, an anti-semitic slur or a no slur a diss he says uh Jews are nothing but a cheek turned inside out is what is what he says. Uh not a thing you should ever say. And that no, there it, is a- it's like a quick James Remar just breaks it like, quick and just kills them. So yeah. Yeah, th- th- there is a lot of uh uh epithets
0: in this yeah. film.
1: Yeah, so if you're sensitive to that, uh and I'm sorry if you were and I just threw one out there.
0: Quoting the movie, so you would have context.
1: <laughs> but uh, this movie has a lot of referring to different cultures by their slur word, and uh, you know it, it just it, and like there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, just about race in this movie, and like and definitely more so in the director's cut. Kind of, there's a lot of the, all these weird rules, and it's like yes, this is a club in Harlem, but the club owned by white people, and the performers so only are black.
0: Whites only attending the club blacks only on stage except for when Richard Gere plays coronet on stage at the end of the movie which is historically inaccurate because white people never played at the cotton club but Richard (laughs) Gere agreed to take the movie for two conditions one he gets you know all the money and two he gets to play coronet in the movie I have to assume because he played coronet already in real life yeah why? Otherwise, why bad. would it he's be? Not, there? He's not
1: bad. He's totally like, you know, I was impressed. I had no idea.
0: And but a coronet uh, is a smaller version of the trumpet. For those yeah. of you that don't know, I played coronet in high school band.
1: Yeah. As good as Richard Gere? Not as good. Well,
0: maybe with practice. I only played it for one year before I got switched to the French horn <laughs> against my will. And then I played the French horn seventh yeah. grade through 12th grade. And I was not good at the French horn. (laughs) It's a really, really difficult instrument to play. I
1: believe it. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about... Mad Dog Dog Time! time. The The Paperboy! Rodecai! After last season! the... The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films the world is wrong about available on paperhouse network wherever you get your podcasts (laughs) well let's talk about the encore version i think it's a good way to talk about that kind of what's in it and why it exists
0: so Uh, i love the beginning of the encore version but so the theatrical it opens just with uh credits on on a blank screen intercut with a dance number and then you're right at the moment where Richard Gere saves James Ramar and gets uh, caught up into the gangster world this movie opens up with a a couple trying to get into the club and the the bouncer uh says w- Woody Strode says like I'm sorry it, the club's whites only I can't let her in here he can't let the woman in and the man says but she's she's white. She's from Spain. Like she was born, she's from Barcelona. And he's like, she, she looks colored to me. I can't let her in. And they have this, they keep bringing up, but she's European. She's from Spain. Can't let you in whites yeah. only. And then a uh, Sandman, Gregory Hines comes by and he is in this version. I don't think it's in the theatrical, but he's calling out numbers for the Harlem numbers racket, which I understand less the more I I see of it. Yeah, just passing along these numbers. Gangsters make money off of uh, people saying random numbers on the street. (laughs) I don't understand, I'm not a gangster. And then he passes by Richard Gere and they actually know each other in this version, in the theatrical version, I'm like, are they actually friends? Do they know each other in any way? And then yeah. they finally say hi to each other at one point late in the movie. I'm like, so they yeah. do know each other. In this movie, they have a conversation at the beginning. Yeah. And it sets up everything. It sets up the 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 setting, the time, the place, the club, the weird, the weird, unfortunate nature of the club, that it's the the hot spot uh for entertainment. But in harlem with black performers you know have, have the spotlight on them showing off their art their craft their skill but they it's only for white people so they are performing <laughs> for white people and outside is gregory hines who really wants to get into that club so he can perform so he can stop uh talking these numbers for the racket and uh uh, uh, Richard Gere, <laughs> I forgot who the lead of the movie was, I can't mm-hmm. imagine why, Richard Gere just arrives and we find out he's just back in town. And like, hey, like I'm gonna play at this club. And he's like, oh yeah, I'll play with you at that club because it's okay for the races to mix at this other club. And then uh, the, the movie starts back where it was at theatrical version it's it's a brilliant opening like efficient
1: it's like the opening they added to the outsiders director's cut where they just introduce all the people in one scene that scene that we talked about and that's a great way just to like really set up like what the whole movie is like what, how it, it makes so much more sense having it be the opening and this director's cut exists because Coppola was going through his garage or I don't know his <laughs> zootrope uh, closet and found a betamax tape of the longer version of the movie before Orion and people had him cut all basically cut all the music numbers out or down to just being in the background basically and cut out a lot of the story kind of hammering in this sort of racial thing and following around Gregory Hines and and Lila and like cut all that out. And so he was like, I want to put all that back in. And also, I don't know if you noticed this, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't, it's like faster, which I did not like. I did not like that the first hour was edited like a Walter Hill movie. It was just like, like that was the part I I really loved all the new scenes, like all the new scenes were great. Like seeing these music numbers were great and it makes the movie so much better. But I hated how that, and it's only the first hour where like the scenes aren't breathing anymore. It's like the scene we talked about where the guy stabbed at the buffet. It just like, it just happens, and then you're just in the next scene. You're like, wait a minute, like, slow down. And it just moves way too fast. It's, I don't know why he did that. Like you're already making a longer movie, just make it even longer. Like just keep, let it breathe and it just moved. And all these scenes just kind of go da And it was kind of unnerving, especially since I just saw it back to back with the original
0: you want the first act to go by quick if your movie is three hours long which is something the godfather and scorsese's casino does well the first 40 minutes of that movie feel like they are only 20 minutes because yeah. so you can get introduced to the characters and the world and everybody we're settled in okay and now we let everything breathe and we focus in on stuff for the second half of the movie. But this movie, a theatrical run, it's just over two hours and uh, it, the, the encore edition, it's Cotton Club Encore is mm-hmm. the official title. Uh, it's only two hours, 18 minutes. He added in some footage and then took out uh, others. So it's not like, you know, the original movie plus half or anything. Yeah. It, it really <clears throat> is a different cut of the film Yeah, which is one thing I like about Coppola's, his director cuts. Uh, He's like, I'm gonna try the film this way now.
1: Yeah, he doesn't just add the deleted scenes in. He really is like redoing the whole movie. And this is now the fourth director's cut that we've done for this show. We did. We started with the Godfather extended TV version, which feels like a totally different thing. Then Apocalypse Now, which has two director's cuts yeah then the outsiders complete novel and now this and this isn't the last one we have godfather three coda whatever it's called now and i'm sure he'll do another one <laughs> before his death uh <laughs> like it's you know it's covid he, grandpa's got nothing to do but yeah. maybe we're gonna see a longer jack <laughs> or a you know tetro five hour <laughs> who knows who uh, knows yeah. who is? This, this is what his winery is paying for like basically the finish and redo the uh, conclave. clip. He put $500,000 of his own money uh, into this. So this is a guy who made this movie for money because he was broke. And then many years later has enough money from his wine. It's all from the winery, the wine that we are currently enjoying. And he was able to just put his own money into digitally remastering this, ha- paying someone to re-edit it, uh, put it out. And it just played at a lot of film festivals and played at art house theaters and uh, big Blu-ray release. And, uh, and everyone loved it. Every, the critics, new modern critics, like love, like the Cotton Club re- really worked to bring people kind of on the side of this movie for the first time ever. Like people really liked the encore version. I like the original and this one, but I still think there's a third version that could be better. I think like maybe if Bezo is listening to this, we can uh, <laughs> agree to pay him a few hundred bucks. There's a guy at Vulcan video who his name was Bezo and he made his own director's cuts and we rented them and he did like Prometheus and uh, Oblivion. Oblivion. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, I made a direct, I made a better version of it. I rent it. We're like, sure. They were better. But yeah, I think there's a third version that's because I like everything was in the first version. I really liked that movie a lot. I When I finished watching it, I was like, this movie's great. And I like all the stuff they added to the the Encore, but I don't like the way he re-edited more quickly. I don't like the quick editing. That was really unnerving. So I think if he could do a third version, (laughs) a, well, what's what's the thing after Encore? What's that? Uh, Whatever that's called a second curtain call
0: (laughs) curtain call yeah curtain call Uh, that That would be you
1: have the way you edit it the old way but with all the extra stuff about gregory Hines and all the music numbers like that because what's so weird about the encore version is that like he edits it so it's a cutter quicker the scenes don't like breathe anymore they just go get it but then when there's a musical number it slows down and you're kind of sitting in this long musical number so it feels really uneven um I was kind of disappointed in the encore. I really was hoping, like, oh, it'll be the first one, but with all this more great stuff. And the more great stuff is there, but the read the kind of editing it like a movie made now did not work for me at all.
0: I wasn't surprised that I uh, I didn't feel so different to watching the encore as a theatrical version. Uh, going from like, well, I don't like this movie. I think it's I think it's a bad movie to like well I think this is okay and there's probably another interesting version of this movie uh because the the runtime wasn't that that different yeah. so uh, I felt like well it can't be that totally totally different uh but I knew that the the musical numbers were added back in so I was excited to see that and I think that was maybe enough for me, was like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie that I didn't think was very good again, but hey, I'll get to see Gregory Hines dance longer. And you do, and you see other musical numbers longer. Something uh, my wife pointed out, when Gregory Hines is dancing at the Cotton Club, Coppola shoots it. She called it the, the Fred Astaire way, which is just to keep the camera far back, don't move it, and no cuts and just let the dancer dance and they will make the shot interesting as possible. And well, he learned and, that
1: from the failure of Finian's rainbow. Yeah. When he cut off Fred Astaire's feet and a lot of musical numbers, you're not seeing his feet move. So he, you know, he got a lot of, you know, people did not like that. So he did it right this time. Yeah. So I, I thought like,
0: well, that's, that's that. great. We're seeing him film another amazing dancer and he's doing it the right way this time
1: i Uh, also really loved those montages of like the like when Nicolas cage is up to no good and kind of wreaking havoc around the town and it's just great montages where they're superimposing like image different imagery and it's really fun like those like that those scenes are great
0: with like uh with like old uh with newspapers and headlines Uh, yeah, I like those. That reminded me really of the part of The Godfather yeah. after Michael uh, kills the, the cop and, and the Turk, lotso, and he leaves to Italy. And there's, yeah, a montage of newspapers and photos of gangland killings. And that was supposed to be the start of the second act of The Godfather. So it was like catching up the audience on what's been going on. And yeah, I really felt influenced, obviously, by that.
1: And I really liked the uh, Sofia Coppola cameo, I guess, if you'll as Domino again, playing yeah. a kid on the street, yet again, bothering the dude in the movie, like bothering Nicolas Cage on the street, like trying to, what's he trying to sell him candy or something? I don't know apples. What she, apples. And he's like, I beat a kid. I don't and want then, an apple. <laughs> that's funny to see the cousins acting together. Uh and then she gets shot. <laughs> Not yep. the last Coppola movie where Sophia Coppola gets shot. At.
0: Yep, yep. She's 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 trying to sell an apple to a young up and coming actor that doesn't want her around, and <laughs> Matt Dillon shows up and shoots her out of the movie. Not Matt Dillon, <laughs> but we all know it should have been. Once but, again, uh, she I is want- told, "Get out of here."
1: I wonder why she's never cast her cousin Nicholas in any of her movies. I want to see a, a Sophia Coppola Nicholas Cage film. I don't. I don't know. Um, I well, I Clearly, she's to- open to improv. Like you know, like she can work with Bill Murray and work off of his riffing. So like, and that's always the problem Nicholas Cage has with directors is they don't know how to handle his sort of like when he goes off into his zone. Yeah, and that's right. She's, she's oh. really good at making movies, sort of like working with that improv so I feel like her and her cousin Nicholas need to team up and do something maybe he's too dark for her world Uh, he's very good in this movie though like it's just it's it's a it's like with each this is a bigger role than even in Rumblefish and he's he's good he's a weird he's getting weirder he's definitely kind of a weirdo in this movie he had the way he stands he's kind of hunched over a bit like he's kind of makes his shoulders look kind of kind of hunched down and in the encore version, you have an extra scene of him having sex with his fiancee, Jennifer Grey, and him like making some weird sounds intentionally for everyone else in the house, the rest of his family to hear. Yeah, that for his mom, bit.
0: Gwen Verdon and Richard Gere to hear. <laughs>
1: um, and yeah, he's great. And yeah, I like, I like this movie. I think maybe because I heard it was so bad that and it was, and I came in with the lowest expectations that I came out of it being like, that was totally enjoyable. Um,
0: the, uh, one thing I want to mention now before I forget, because I didn't write it down in my notes, was that um, at the end of the documentary, Easy Riders Raising Bulls, inspired by the book by Peter Biskind about the new Hollywood of the late 60s, early 70s, the documentary ends with epilogue cards for all of the uh, filmmakers directors and writers and actors uh, that the film focuses on, set to Life's Been Good to Me by uh, Joe Walsh, which I felt was the perfect song to end the documentary (laughs) with. But anyway, his epilogue card is about him making the Cotton Club. And it's (laughs) what we've been talking about. Like, he was great. And then he fucked up and now he he had to do the Cotton Club wah, wah. <laughs> Steven Spielberg's epilogue card is he became the most successful commercial director of all time and my favorite, the one that I don't know like gives me gives me strength. It's like my footprint's poem is Martin Scorsese continues to try to make personal films with Hollywood money. <laughs>
1: You know what's interesting is, like, out of all those guys, is he the only one who hasn't done some director's cut? Like, he seems like he's always happy with what he's got and then moves forward. Whereas, like, George Lucas clearly, like, is tinkered with his redone stuff. Uh, Yeah, yeah, of course, George Lucas
0: is talked about in that documentary.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Scorsese's
0: never done that. Like, deleted scenes are never in his DVDs, I don't even think.
1: I think he just he makes the movie he wants always. He doesn't
0: even want. He doesn't even like to do commentaries. If you listen to a Scorsese DVD commentary, it's, it's actually <laughs> it, it, it's not that long. It's and and so it's subbed in with other actors or filmmakers or or, or yeah. writers or whatever. But and then if you listen, if you really pay attention to how he's talking, it's obvious that he's not even watching the film. That this is like an interview that they yeah. taped and now they're playing over the movie to trick you into thinking it's a commentary.
1: I think New York, New York is the only one that there's a different version of because I think that's maybe the only version of his that was fucked with by people perhaps, is that right? I think there's like a different version of that maybe. Uh,
0: I'm unaware of the behind the scenes stuff.
1: But uh, uh, but he that. seems like he's, there's no, extended director he just moves forward he's not like sitting around wondering how to make his movies better he's just like color money good enough moving on <laughs> <laughs> like it's not like even spielberg has gone back you know with close encounters or et and you know changed things. Has, is coppola is he the filmmaker with the most director's cuts yeah i like, mean he has have, to be like, all the different versions of like, like like ridley scott has like you know, like does Blade Runner every 10 years for, you know, for whatever reason, uh, never making that movie good. I don't like that movie. <laughs> so, but like he, uh, and he has different <laughs> versions of like, uh, I think kingdom of heaven has like a longer version.
0: There's an extended yeah. cut of gladiator. Yeah. Um, kingdom of heaven. That's one kingdom of heaven. It's like, I feel like that's more like Alexander, like Oliver Stone's Alexander.
1: He has a lot of director's cuts uh yeah. like JFK has an extended version I think Nixon natural born Killers keep he for whatever reason keeps doing Alexander as do the DVD company I guess it's like it's not even him it's like the like for whatever reason whoever owns the rights to that movie wants like, to We still it.
0: haven't made our money back
1: <laughs> different version if if there's the new scenes of Jack A added to Alexander then I'll be I'll be excited.
0: One, one of all right, we're gonna get back to Cotton Club now, <laughs> for those wondering. <laughs> one of the one of the highlights of the encore edition is there's an extended scene of Jack Hay yeah performing. And it, yeah, it's wonderful. It's great.
1: She, she's great. And it made me want to see her in things again now. Is she does she do anything? Because she was in Sister Sister, is that right? And 227. I think those were her hit shows but I didn't like, is she a Broadway person? Like, cause she's great in this and she's dancing, she's singing. She's really good. Uh, like it's, she's not really a character in the movie. You only ever see her on the stage performing, but it's clearly her. And you can, you can kind of see her in the background of the original, but in Encore she gets a whole scene to do this sort of comedy bit music number, which is great.
0: Yeah. That, that's and, one uh, of those things like in yeah. the theatrical version and like seeing that Jack Hay is going to be in the movie and then like, she's barely in it and you're like well what the fuck i thought i thought jack k was gonna be in this and then yeah <laughs> she has her whole we get to see her whole number on stage at the yeah. cotton club which i makes the movie about the cotton club
1: yeah i think the one part i don't like about this movie is I, f- and lane is underused like i think out of the three couple of movies we've seen with her in it despite her being the one of the main characters of this movie there's just not, it seemed like there's just not much there. But I mean, we said that was sort of the complaint with every of the main characters in this movie. So it's not really her fault. Like she looks great, she's good, but it just, there's not, again, there's like, there's a lack of a, like, we, you really connect with her in The Outsiders and you really like her in Rumblefish. But in this, it's like, it doesn't, like, I just feel like you just kind of forget she's even in the movie, even though she's in the movie a lot.
0: Yeah, by far, um, of the Coppola films, she's been in, yeah, Brumblefish is by far her most interesting role and the one where she gets to really, you know, present us a a character, you know, a person. And in Outsiders, it's, uh, you know, a very male movie. She's like the one female in a cast of like 15 dudes. And in this movie, she doesn't have a whole lot to do because there's so much else to do. So it's almost like a thankless role. She, she's not bad in the movie, despite the fact that, and if you've listened to us before, you know what we think of the Razzies. She Funny. got a Razzie nomination.
1: Which is insane!
0: She got a Razzie nomination for this movie and Streets of Fire.
1: Which she is great in. Like, Streets of Fire is one of her best performances. And in this movie, She's fine. So you're gonna give her worst a worst actress nomination? Fuck you, Raz. What? I hate you. There's not a day that goes by when I don't hate the Raz because when you hear stuff like that, where it's like, where you're just being trolls. Like, Why? Why? why like, why are you picking on Diane Lane in this movie? Like, the it's res- totally inoffensive. There's nothing bad. You, there's no way that anyone could watch this movie and be like, Diane Lane's really bad in that movie. Like, no. Like the movie uh, no. is empty at parts, and it's it's not her fault that it it's not well written at times. But she's doing a good job. I mean, and even if she doesn't get to stand
0: out, but she doesn't have the chance to stand out.
1: Yeah, but you can say that about Richard Gere and everybody in the movie. Like, It's like a lot of people kind of get lost in the show. Like this movie is a big movie and a lot of people in it and you kind of get lost in it. But like to say that she's one of the five worst, like that's insane. It's it's proved that the Raspberry Awards have been bullshit always always <laughs> Since like 1984, now it's just like people pick like do they even watch these movies like why are you i don't get it it makes because the movie didn't do well because they base it on well that movie didn't make money so therefore let's pick let's kick these people while they're down let's kick these actors and actresses and make them feel bad for being a movie that failed even though that's not their fault yeah the, the, um, the
0: razzies are such bullshit because it, it's obvious now that they've got two things like one they hate franchises and sequels and they seem just really misogynist. Whatever actress is at the top and about to hit backlash, they have to like really jump on. You know,
1: Like how Sandra Bullock won Worst Actress the same year she won Best Actress. Uh, she won Best Actress for what is that movie called? The, for the, the Blind
0: Side. The, the same Blind year Side she and won. she got
1: Worst Actress for All About Steve. which is great a great movie and a great performance
0: i've i've (laughs) I've never seen it i know people aside from you that like that movie it's
1: really Um, good you you know they
0: only gave her the razzie for all about steve not even her worst fucking movie because she was gonna win best actress for The Blind Side. If she hadn't yeah. been up for an Oscar that year, no, the Razzies would not have cared. Yeah. But here she was you know, about to have a big moment. And admittedly, I don't really like The Blind Side. It's okay, but <laughs> I would not give it awards attention. <laughs> uh, but I digress.
1: But this is the first couple of in a while to be nominated for Oscars. Two yes. Oscar nominations for this movie.
0: Do Oscar nominations, and it's the first Coppola movie in a while where, so he's had two main collaborators throughout his career, and we touched on this in our previous uh, Rumblefish episode, and those are Walter Murch, a sound designer, and Dean Tavalaris, the production designer, who's production designer on like all of his films up to this point, or at least all the major films. Uh, this film because it was just a job for hire and he took it unexpectedly, expecting just to consult on the screenplay and then, okay, I really need money, I'll write this screenplay and then, okay, I really need money, I'll direct it. Dean Telvalaris was already committed to another film. So the uh, production designer's art direction slash set decoration is what the category is called now. Uh, went to Uh, Richard Silbert and George Gaines and it was also nominated for best editing uh, Barry Malkin and Robert Q. Lovett Barry Malkin has worked with Coppola since The Rain People and and I think they knew each other before that maybe going back to USC or UCLA because I always forget for you astute listeners anyway Richard Silbert is a if you're a total film nerd like we are uh like a very established notable production designer who did work on who's afraid of virginia wolf and the graduate manchurian candidate and chinatown and would later do uh dick Dick tracy Tracy! (laughs) which is one of the best looking movies ever Doing the production design for Dick Tracy to me, that should be like winning the MacArthur Genius Grant. We're like, oh, you're so smart. You obviously just deserve money. The person that did the production design for Dick Tracy should yeah. just have so much money they can do whatever yeah. they want with the rest of their lives.
1: It's uh, 1984 was an interesting year for the Oscars. A lot of like really good movies. Like that was Amadeus when Amadeus kind of swept. Which ended up winning Art Direction. In that category, the Cotton Club was against Amadeus, A Passage to India, The Natural in 2010. An interesting, very interesting combination of movies. And then the uh, editing, the one that it lost to, it lost to The Killing Fields, but it was nominated with Amadeus, A Passage to India, and Romancing the Stone, nominated for Oscar for editing. But like that, that was a good year because that's the year of, uh, for Best Director, you have Milos Forman won, Robert Benton for Places in the Heart, Woody Allen for Broadway, Danny Rose, Roland Jaffe for Killing Fields, and David Lean for Passage to India. So that was like a big sort of like year with a lot of big, you know, deal movies.
0: Gosh, I haven't really looked at that year specifically or really the 80s in general. The 80s Oscar wise are seen as this, and we kind of touched on this in the Rumblefish episode that film in the 80s was seen was seen at as like a, a wasteland of meh yeah you know and with oscars that maybe is a more valid uh, uh, argument but uh like i mean amadeus is is great uh i don't get I've seen Broadway Danny Rose a couple times. I like it. I don't get why people especially like that film.
1: That's my favorite Woody Allen movie, AJ. Really? Yeah, that's the best one. How is that not your favorite one? That movie's amazing.
0: My favorite is either... it's uh, Currently, it's Manhattan.
1: Yeah, that movie's pretty good, I guess. It it, it used to be... Broadway Danny Rose is the most interesting Mia Farrow performance of any Woody Allen movie. Like, she is great in it. She's played a totally different character than she's ever played in anything.
0: Well, that That like, is true. That like is true. That's
1: I the read that she- me, like, That movie's great because it's the best Mia Farrow in uh, all of the Woody Allen movies, for sure. Um, that's true. I, I, like I read that he's made her wear,
0: he made wow. her wear sunglasses the whole movie because <laughs> he thought that she didn't look like tough enough to play uh that kind of character she's a gangster's girlfriend and he's the guy in charge of taking care of her like richard gear in the cotton club i bet you didn't think we were going to bring it back to the cotton club Thank but we did brought it back. <laughs> um has that ever worked out for a gangster like having <laughs> someone take care of your girlfriend no <laughs> like maybe maybe marcellus wallace in pulp fiction
1: it doesn't work out. I mean, it could have gone like she, really bad. <laughs> she, she, she doesn't cheat on him. Over those.
0: <laughs> She doesn't fall in love with Richard, with, she doesn't fall in love with John Travolta. But she
1: would have if she hadn't OD'd. She's saved by the heroine because it's going, because in that movie, in Pulp Fiction, it's going that way because they're both drunk. They just dance together. They're going into their, apart, their house and she's like, oh, I'm going to put on some music and he's like, i got to go to the bathroom and it feels like it's leading towards them maybe sleeping together. Like there's definitely that in the air. And then luckily, I guess, she ODs on heroin, when making it. So that doesn't happen. And he thankfully saves her life with Eric Still. So it could have gotten much worse, I guess. She could have died or they had an affair. And John Travolta could have then been, mur- been murdered by Marce- Marcellus Wallace. But it didn't didn't go there. Uh, <laughs> anyways, Cotton Club <laughs> is what this episode is about. So is this the... It's gonna be a while again until there's a, an Oscar nomination for Coppola, or is or is there? Like, is I, Peggy, and married get nominated for anything? Or
0: I can't be sure at this point. I know,
1: Nothing I know, am you know,
0: I know I'm the 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 Oscars guy because that's what I tell everyone that I am. <laughs> uh, but I thought I thought after Apocalypse Now we were done with Oscars until. godfather Godfather three three. but yeah there are these um these weird
1: technical ones
0: yeah these technical (laughs) ones the the below the line categories then in a way they make sense like uh one from the heart got a nomination for the score Uh It's like well that's that is a notable thing about that that film yeah i i yeah i had no idea that cotton club which again has a reputation as a notorious bomb it's coppola like selling out because he just needs money he's so like desperate but it gets nominations because it's still he gets committed to do it he wants to do it his way and evans wants to do it and he's committed to it and so they hire great people yeah you know they hire a great cast they hire a great crew and it spirals out of control and people get Murdered and are found in the trunks of cars. Yeah. yeah, but uh no one was like, like this is like oh just a cash grab. No, like yeah, like this was
1: yeah, We're still supposedly in the him making movies to pay off his debt, but he's still making them his own. He's still making them interesting. Like whether you like this movie or not, or whether you like Rumble Fish or not, or whatever. Like he's making the movies he wants to make, and even this movie that got. Edited down, he edited it down himself because people asked him to, and he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll cut some of this stuff out because I, you know, want to turn this movie. He was still behind the cuts, like he made the cuts. You know, he regretted making the cuts and later made a director's cut of it. But like, it's still he's still turning in the movie, you know, that he's making. You know, and like part of making movies, especially with a studio, is you have to do this kind of give and take of giving him what they want, doing what you want, and uh, and it's again him doing this sort of dance between making an art film like with like Rumblefish, which is very experimental and then going back to making kind of a more classic, very classic Hollywood type movie, but still different enough because it's like got these weird music in it. And like, it's not just like none of these movies are boring. This is not just like watching some guy, like when you see directors that really fall from grace, like, and I won't be mean or name names, but like you can see people really, you can tell when they're making a movie just for money or just totally giving up. just doing some crap you know (laughs) like and coppola hasn't really done that yet like this movie is an interesting movie like roger eber gave it four stars like it's nominated for oscars and the big garbage
0: i think reason as to why this film i feel like it was handicapped from the beginning like it, it could only be so good is because robert evans he just needed a hit he was just a great production chief he could like set things up and then the people he hired coppola and marapuzo and brando and pacino could make the godfather and you know everyone would be happy and like at this point he doesn't have paramount behind him he's just an independent producer and coppola is hired yeah first just to give notes on the screenplay And he researches the Cotton Club and the Harlem Renaissance and all the people that like went to the Cotton Club and the people that performed at the Cotton Club like Cab Calloway and people that went to the Cotton Club like, uh, 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 Sunset Boulevard, Gloria Swanson and James Cagney and Chaplin. Harley
1: Chaplin, (laughs) which thankfully that's all cut out of the encore because that part is stupid. That part is so, stupid. Couple cut that part out. And it's like, it's like it's Charlie Chaplin. Does he literally do the rolls on the fork thing at the table yes, or some dumb yes. shit? And you're like, he didn't. Come on.
0: It's he almost did. embarrassing. <laughs> it is embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, and he like okay, like I'm like I want to do this movie about the Harlem Renaissance, but I have to do this gangster movie as well because Evans. And it's one of those things that like. Someone quotes Evans as saying this. Evans says I never said it, but when he bought the rights to the uh the Cotton Club book, he said something like, and since he doesn't actually commit to it, I'll just paraphrase the paraphrase. It's like, I've got a movie with gangsters, jazz, and pussy. I can't lose.
1: <laughs> Real class That's- act that Robert Evans. <laughs> yeah.
0: Just imagine the devil saying that, and that's (laughs) what Robert Evans would have sounded like. (laughs) And of course, since it's the Cotton Club, there's gonna be, there's a lot of interesting black stories to get into, but Evans wants it to be about like white gangsters and the glamorous white movie stars that like went there, the glamorous white people that were in the audience. And he's like, okay, well, cut down on this. And since Coppola is not going to direct this movie, he's just going to write it. All right, fine. And Evans did hire an advisor to oversee like the accuracy. And she would talk to Coppola about really getting in more Black characters and expanding the Black storylines. But Coppola... uh, feeling pressure from both her and robert evans his boss at this point was like well like i'm just writing this job as a like a gig like you know i don't he's not really invested in it so he errs on the side of evans who is the guy that's paying him and a lot of the black stories get reduced on the script level yeah and then after that he gets he gets hired to direct the film and so but now he's got this script where the white characters are the focus of the movie and then still wants to include the black characters and he films those scenes as we've seen and maybe there's even more of that in the footage that got lost forever somewhere so but the result is uh, like a movie that if he had been involved with from the very beginning and had control with from the very beginning, it could have been like the great, like, um, like American gangster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you've got like a white lead and a black lead and they both feel yeah. equal in this film, Richard Gere and Gregory Hines are both the leads of the film, but it really feels like in the theatrical cut, Gregory Hines is barely in this goddamn movie. Yeah. And he has more scenes, or his scenes are at least longer in the Encore edition. So yeah. he feels like he is actually like the black lead of the film. Yeah. Siskel and Ebert, in their review, which you can see on siskelandebert.org, they talk about how like great the film is because it, 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 it addresses the issues of race that were going on in America at the time. And if you watch the theatrical cut, you're like, it barely talks about race at the time. Like it brings these things up, but it doesn't expand on them. Like the fact that uh, this reminds me of uh, uh, *Imitation of Life*, both versions, which are about uh, like a white woman becoming a successful businesswoman based on the like pancake recipe of her uh, black maid, and her black maid has a daughter who is light enough to pass for white and tries to pass for white and gets found out and still faces adversity. Uh, The original one has Claudette Colbert in it and the remake is a Douglas Sirk film who's a perfect director for that kind of material. But that is still the B plot in a film about a white woman becoming a successful businesswoman. You're like, wait, but the story about the black mother and her light-skinned daughter who knows she can get further in society if she pretends to be white is like the way more interesting, interesting story. Why is that not the whole plot of the film? Cause it's the fifties and the thirties, I get it. The character Lila played by Launette McKee who's light enough to pass. Like it just gets brought up that she's light enough to pass for white. And that's the way the film just addresses that. And in 1984, that was enough. Just bringing that up was enough, and and critics, Siskel and Ebert specifically, were like, "Oh my! Like it addresses race, like fine, <laughs> like it, like it, it does it. You know, it doesn't explore it though. If you made this film today, if it were an HBO series, that would yeah. be explored so thoroughly, and you'd feel yeah. like a satisfaction and the closure yeah. in exploring what." what the lila character gone through when someone asks her why she pretends to be white why she passes for white she says something like because i can you know like she knows she can become more successful if she pretends to be a white the actress
1: who plays her i've never seen her before and i guess she was a singer like an accomplished artist but and she's really good in it what what's her name her name is Lynette McKee. Yeah, she's good. She's really good. And it's again, when you watch this, you really wish there was more of her and wish that she was more of a main character because like every time it follows her for even a short amount of time, it's really interesting. And her her storyline is really interesting of being this person who can pass for both black and white and getting through these sort of doors that other people can't. And like, yeah, like I wish that the the movie had yeah, I agree with Gene Siskel. I wish this movie was like three and a half hours long. It would be so much better. Just go for it. Like make a really good, long, rich movie.
0: The uh, other person I want to bring up is Lawrence Fishburne as uh, Bumpy Johnson, who, I mean, in in the either version, he's not in it very much. mm But again, you wish he was in it more. Yeah. And he has such this like big presence in the film. And I think he might still be credited as Larry Fishburne at this point. Yeah. Like he Mm. is not Larry Fishburne. He's not little 14 year old Larry Fishburne. That was in Apocalypse Now. Or even in uh, Rumblefish, which he's in briefly... Like he, you can tell he's kind of grown up, but now he's already bumpy roads. Bumpy roads is his character. He he's Lawrence Fishburne at this point. Like he's wearing a hat again. That's <laughs> that's his that's his trademark. Uh, but he is like speaks with like such authority and presence. It's like like just like damn like okay like this guy's important
1: and again you wish there was another hour of him because like what little they do when they dip in it's so interesting and you want to know what his character is going up to and there's an added scene there's a little few added scenes with him in it like few little moments but like again like he's barely in it but you can tell that he's like a big star just about to like like once someone gives him that big juicy role that he's going to be amazing you know it's going to be a few more years until he gets that but like you know, like King of New York or whatever, when he's Jimmy Jump or whatever his character is. <laughs> he's so good. But like he, like he, you can tell like he's a movie star. He's like, it's it's like him and Nicolas Cage's movie. Like they're in it, not a lot, but there's something about them. Like they're, these guys are interesting. There's something going on here. And like, they will eventually someday be able to flourish in a movie once they get like that nice, when someone knows what to do with them. You know? Yeah,
0: his um, his character in, in both versions has this great moment where uh, Gregory Hines has just been like talked down to by the the white manager of the Cotton Club, and he wants to just like he's like I want to kill the guy, and he's talking to Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne says, "Listen to the man. I'll
1: piss on his fucking grave, sugar. Sandman, I can
0: kill him, but you can dance on his grave. I'll piss on his No, listen to me, Sandman. I'm not a dancer, okay?" I'm a pimp, I'm a thief, I'm a gambler. That's what I do. I don't have no talent for dancing to where I want to get to in this world. I can't even get my foot in the door of the cotton club where my own people, black people, are the stars. Why? Because I'm black. There's only two things in this world I have to do, Sandman. One is stay black, the other is
1: die. The white man ain't left me nothing out here but the underworld. And that is where I dance. Let me ask you something, Sandman. Where do you dance? I'm gonna just say about that bouncer. If you're like racist, maybe don't get a job in Harlem working <laughs> at a club with black yeah. performers. Like maybe that's not the job for you. If you hate, you know, if you're, if you're a racist, hateful person.
0: Yeah, that character. <laughs> I mean, there's no like everyone says epithets at this point. Even Richard Gere, who is like you know ostensibly the the sympathetic, relatable lead. Yeah. yeah says that he's tired of being the dutchman's n-word yeah uh and that's why he leaves goes to hollywood and becomes a movie star yeah randomly (laughs) i'm just gonna do this now like uh what okay i guess we'll (laughs) go with this uh yeah everyone says it but there's no character that really feels like the evil like racist guy except for this uh
1: Answer, this, or whatever he's the backstage manager. I don't know what yeah, the, the backstage, backstage manager.
0: And yeah. and even like Ben he feels like yeah, to me he's the only character that feels like uh like cartoonish just because he's like so angry, like and so racist at this club in in Harlem. Like yeah, just just don't work there. But he, he's not like the villain of the film like he does eventually Lawrence fishburne and the other black gangsters do beat him up and it's this triumphant moment watching it today with like today's 2021 mindset you know like well this guy like it's not presented like this guy is the one problem (laughs) that the cotton club has right now
1: Have you ever seen the movie hoodlum with Lawrence Fishburne, which is basically about the same people like he plays Bumpy Johnson in it. (laughs) Oh, I I did not know that. And and Tim Roth is Dutch and Andy Garcia plays Lucky Luciano and Vanessa Williams plays Francine Hughes. And it's like, basically like the same world. It's 1930s Harlem cotton club. Uh, I, I bet that's really good. <laughs> I, bet that's I have really never, I've never seen so, Hoodlum.
0: I'm, I'm adding it to my Netflix DVD queue now.
1: Like it's hard in this post-video store world we live in to track down all these movies when we want to watch them. Sadly, but I think that that will definitely be. I definitely want to watch that. I think that'll be an interesting follow-up uh, to this. And just like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I just think like that's interesting that he who's in both movies, you know, in that same world. So, like, I think that could be... And I don't know if they make Tim Roth look ugly like they did with James (laughs) Moore. I don't think think so. But uh, I definitely would love to see that. And it's directed by Bill Duke, the great Bill Duke from Predator. So, (laughs) I think that could be a very good movie uh, for sure. So, I feel like like that's our hallmark, is to watch some hoodlum. I only found out about it... uh, Last night, after I watched *The Cotton Club* as Rainey, I was like, "Oh, there's another movie with Lawrence Fishburne in the same world. Like, I bet that could be really good." So, yeah, I. um, Anything else do you want to say about *Cotton Club* before we say farewell? We touched
0: on a lot. I guess the only thing in my notes I haven't touched on is that. At the end, this movie kind of becomes a musical, like Cabaret, Mm -hmm. uh, directed by Bob Fosse, who's married to Gwen Verdon, who is in this movie. uh, In that, in Cabaret writes about the, the club where it's performed. And the reason Cabaret is a big deal in film history, I mean, one, it's a good movie. But two, it was one of the first movie musicals where Characters didn't burst into song;
1: they yeah, performed the at this club, was, yeah.
0: And then it was cut into whatever was happening outside the club. And at the yeah. end of this film, you kind of see the fall of the characters in this movie. And Gregory Hines does this like intense tap dance number, and it's intercut with all of Dick Schultz's gang, himself included, being like gunned down. Yeah. And it's melancholy and it's uh, it works. And then yeah. the final, the, the finale where we s- is basically the epilogue, what happens to all the characters is done to intercut with a number at the Cotton Club. But then also like the dancers are dancing in real places seemingly. Yeah. Like it seems like they're they're dancing in Grand Central Station and yeah. then they dance in one direction, and they're back on stage at the Cotton Club. Yeah. And we see that Bob Hoskins violated his parole, so he's getting taken away, but he's gonna <laughs> retire anyway. And Fred wins. like, I'll be waiting for you. <laughs> like, they're in a,
1: love, they love each other.
0: It's a very uh-huh. touching moment. Like, whether you want to think that it's like, uh, like they're homosexuals or they're just really good friends, like, I love it. it it's it's a best. great relationship they have, yeah.
1: I really like the ending. I like this part at the train station where it's kind of following all the different pairs and all the different people. In cl- yeah, in, in like, and like, I really like that. Like, that's a really fun and it's kind of a, kind of fun, sort of almost like a whimsical tone to the end. Like, it's very really lighthearted and positive feeling. Yeah, Like, it's, yeah, it's like it a, is. This movie totally ends with a happy ending.
0: It's it's an upbeat <laughs> number, and Richard Gere is yeah. going back to Hollywood, and he wants Diane Lane to go with him, and she said no, and he's. They're at the train station with his mom. And then she sees a young, uh, a young black kid dancing and says like, you're using your arms too much. You gotta dance like this. And then she dances and then the encore edition it's extended and it's wonderful. And her and this little kid dance together. And of course, Diane Lane shows up at the train station They get on the train and it pulls out uh, of the station. And the train is called the 20th Century Limited which in the theatrical version, I thought that should have been the title of the movie <laughs> because most of this did not take place at the Cotton Club. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's getting like mixing the, the dance world, dance fantasy world and the real world of the characters together. Yeah, um, it And I think it, it works as, as an ending to this movie, which overall I don't think works
1: very much i know you had a lot of positive things to say about it for this whole episode edgy and less negative so i feel maybe you do like this movie and you can't admit to it
0: i think well i i definitely didn't feel <laughs> i didn't feel like the film was antagonizing me i feel like richard Gere should not have been cast in this movie
1: would sylvester stallone been the better choice you think
0: hmm <laughs> Let's see. he's supposed
1: to be an Irishman, so if he's supposed <laughs> to play an Irish American. Maybe, maybe that won't work. I don't know. I mean, Richard Gere doesn't seem Irish either. But uh, <laughs> neither does nicholas Cage, for that matter. So I don't know who would you put in there. I, you know, I have no idea. Ryan o'neill What? Do you, what? Do you, <laughs> that's it's um, also going with a dead-eyed, <laughs> boring actor. I don't know. It's uh you know. Yeah,
0: I don't know. Um... <laughs> i mean i still like if if i was going to recommend this anyone to watch this movie i'd recommend they watch the encore edition which is currently on free on hoopla yeah which which was great yeah available through your local library if you have a library membership you can watch movies on hoopla for free it's really cool yeah it's also on imdb tv all Uh, sorts of ways to watch movies now Which you have to watch with commercials, but it's fine watching movies with commercials. Yeah. Because then you get to do other stuff. It's cool. I like it. Go to the bathroom. (laughs) Go to the bathroom. I make a snack. It's great.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm excited about our next episode, which is gonna be the final collaboration and the best collaboration between Nicholas Coppola and his uncle Francis Coppola called Peggy Sue Got Married. I'm so excited. To see this movie uh again i haven't seen it in very long have you ever seen this movie
0: i've seen it i don't know that i've seen it all the way through like it's one of those uh, okay. that played on tv a lot it at did a it played point. on
1: the tv a lot
0: yeah and exactly. so i've watched it uh i know that i've sat and watched it all the way through but uh i mean i liked what i saw
1: yeah so i that'll be our next episode uh Hopefully there won't be any more huge natural disasters in Texas and we can turn it out a little quicker than we did the, between these last two. The weather's nice. It's like 80 degrees today. I think we're in a good place. I think we'll be fine. Yeah.
0: 80 degrees, normal winter temperatures here in Texas.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think we can fit in a Peggy's who got married uh, in no time easily. So,
0: All right. You know. uh, Brian, where else can we find you?
1: Yes, I have another podcast called The World is Wrong, which I do with Andras Jones, where we talk about movies uh, that the world is wrong about. Uh, you, when this comes out, we're in the middle of our, we're about to start our n- month of Nicole Kidman Kidmania. Where Ooh. we review, because we, we talk about how Nicole Kidman is underrated in a weird way and talk about four movies of hers that are very underrated and great so i will look forward to
0: those episodes i think she's she's definitely underrated as an actress not as a movie star not as a pretty face but as an actual actress i do think definitely talk
1: about that so i'm excited for the world to hear all of that and that'll that'll start once this episode's out i think we're about to start that uh or starting it depending on when we get this done and how about you where can we find you aj
0: Cool. I am on Twitter at AJGO85, also on Letterboxd, under the same thing. Uh, yeah, y- y- you know how I am with Twitter, if you've uh, listened to this podcast before. Not good at Twitter. <laughs> I think anybody, I like Twitter. Anybody,
1: though, can you be good at it? Isn't it just a way to get in trouble or to just, like, get angry about other people?
0: Yeah, like, that's basically all Twitter <laughs> is. Uh, <laughs>
1: I don't know why it exists (laughs) to get people in trouble or to be mad. I wish
0: instead of Twitter we had Premiere Magazine again. It was so much
1: better that way. that was the best. Those were the days. Yeah,
0: but uh, Leatherbox is less toxic than Twitter. I'm on there. You can see what I think of of the movies we watch before we talk about. How many stars did you give the
1: Cotton Club?
0: I gave Um, it two. Two? Not two and a half no a solid two
1: yeah oh i would give
0: the encore edition two and a half oh
1: this is this is definitely a three-star movie to me if we do the zero through five star rating system i have a blog i haven't written on in a
0: while but hopefully that will change soon because uh it's oscar season sort of kind of who knows at this point called a (laughs) cinema then and now dot blogspot.com all right well um yeah i guess uh you like the Cotton Club. I say I didn't like the Cotton Club, though. Everything I've said before this moment may have uh, betrayed that sentiment. <laughs> I would not say do not check out the Cotton Club, though. If you want to, go ahead. Because there is, there is uh, stuff worthwhile in this movie to be seen.
1: I think it's great. Everyone should watch it.
0: If uh, you want to get in touch with us direct, you can email us at uh, directorswall at gmail.com. Tweet at us at directorswall at gmail at gmail.com. No, just tweet at us at directorswall because it's Twitter. (laughs) Will I be able to edit around that? I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) Do it again. Before before I twist up uh, my words anymore, uh, we'll be signing off. Uh, thanks okay. for listening. Spring is almost here. Oh, if you're gosh, in Texas. So uh, it'll be great. It's great to not uh, lose power and water for <laughs> week for days at a time, if not weeks.
1: It, it's only the twenty first century, you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. It's you know we made it out okay. That's all that matters. But yeah, thanks for listening. And yeah, we'll do a Peggy Sue so Got Married Next and then.